Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. Uh, some of you may remember that, not the last sermon, but the sermon before that, uh, one of the things uh, that it touched upon was the idea of change, that the gospel changes us. And the comment that I made was that to say that cynical kind of statement, people never change, is as much a denial of the gospel and the reality of the gospel uh, as to say Jesus is just a myth. To say people never change denies the power of the gospel. And that's what this week's sermon is all about. It really dives more deeply into change and, and how the gospel changes and why it changes us as well. So what we're talking about when we speak about the gospel and we speak about salvation is really coming into right standing with God. And you come into right standing with God relying on the finished work of Jesus, trusting Him, following Him with your life. And to do that is truly to embark on a process of change. That's what it's going to feel like. The, God, the salvation isn't just the sort of thing that affects your here and after. It's something that affects your right now. It affects what's going on in your life on a day-to-day basis. It's a process of change. And so in the chapter that we had to read this week from the John Stott book, he almost opens up with this line. He says, his plan is to, to first put us right, excuse me, his plan is first to put right our relationship with him and then progressively to set us free from our own self-centeredness and bring us into harmony with other people. So it begins at salvation, it begins in being put into right relationship with God, but then we embark upon a process of change. And as I was reflecting upon this idea, a good analogy I I thought about was the analogy of marriage how marriage works in a similar way. Now, I've been married just once, and when you are in that moment of your wedding, you're standing before this other person and you're making vows before them. And as you make these vows, you're you're promising, making these solemn oaths before God and before a whole host of witnesses and before this other person uh, that you will kind of bind yourself to them. You're going to give yourself to them as well. Now, there's nothing physically that changes between you. You Think about just the whole ceremony itself. Nothing physical changes. Nothing biological changes. Nothing in the air changes. And yet, there's a fundamental shift at an unseen level. There's There's a shift in legal status. There's also a shift in spiritual reality. The Bible speaks about marriage as being something that binds us together spiritually, that it's something unifying, that two become one in that moment. And so there's a change that occurs at this unseen level, but the unseen level becomes seen in the way that fruit becomes to be produced out of it. On the surface, nothing discernible happens in that moment, but in that moment you are different, you are changed, and that change is because something that didn't exist before begins to exist, being a a union, a marriage, and this 
brings newness out of your life. It brings a new reality forth in the world. And this is why it's like conversion. It's like becoming a Christian. But I would say that uh, if you would try to try to compare them, marriage is like the movie to conversion being the book. Like the book is so much better and more deep and detailed and world building. And so marriage is sort of what is what like what conversion is writ small. Like it's a small little summary statement of all that conversion is. It's easy to think about converting to being a Christian as nothing more than just a person changing their perspective on matters, going from something before to a new perspective on Jesus, a new allegiance to Jesus, nothing more than just a change of mind. And though it certainly is that, it's far more. That, that alone is just scratching the surface. When somebody becomes a Christian, when they place their trust in Christ, something spiritual happens. And I know that sounds super vague, like something spiritual happens. But what I'm trying to say is that this something, the way the Bible describes it, is the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You become a person who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. The Holy Spirit being an attribute, or being really the presence of God in your life. God comes and He dwells within you. And that's actually a defining character, a characteristic of what a true Christian is. If you were to define what is a Christian, a perfectly valid definition would be a person with whom the Holy Spirit dwells. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So it's quite plain what it's saying there is, if the Spirit of God lives in you, then you're in this different realm. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, then, which is another way of saying the Holy Spirit, then you belong to Christ. But if you don't, by extension, then you don't belong to Christ as well. So the Spirit is received by the hearing and the receiving of the gospel. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. We, have, we, we receive the Spirit when we receive the gospel, we hear it when we say yes to the gospel. And what happens may not be discernible from an outward perspective, but inwardly a change occurs. Something that didn't exist before begins to exist within your life and you begin to bear the fruit of that change. So what happens there is complex. It is far-reaching. And so I'm not going to be able to explain all that the Holy Spirit does within a person's life. But what I'm going to try to do is focus on a couple of the big ones so we can get a feel for what it is that we're speaking about here. The act of appropriating the gifts, the actions, the works of Christ into our life is the, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. What I'm speaking of here is, let's say, everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross, the defeat of death, the, you know, the, the payment of sin, the, you know, the, the, sort of the, the pouring out of the wrath of God upon Him, to, to spare us, that moves from being a historical fact to a personal reality. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes that finished work of Christ, all that he, Christ has accomplished, and he appropriates it to you. Like having food on the outside of you to having food on the inside of your belly. There's a difference. When it's outside, it's not doing you any good. When it's inside you, it is sustaining and strengthening you as well. Christ earns these gifts. 
the Holy Spirit brings them into us. And so we begin to experience them. We begin to experiencing them emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. We begin to experience the effects of these gifts like grace upon our life and purpose in our life. These things become real to us. And so I forget what it was. I think it was um, J.I. Packer who likens the work of the Holy Spirit to like a spotlight. A spotlight shines to illuminate an area for you to be able to see. Now, you may not be able to see the spotlight, but that's not the point of the spotlight. The point of the spotlight isn't to illuminate itself, it's to illuminate something else. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is illuminating in your heart the work of Christ, showing it to you, teaching it to you, affecting it within you so that you become changed by it as well. Part of that work is in conviction and repentance. John 16, 8 says, when He comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction, conviction about sin, about righteousness, about judgment. You know, it's not enough for us often to know what is right and wrong. That's often not enough for us to actually affect any change. So that what the work of the Holy Spirit does is revealing this to you actually gives you the burden to change as well. Not only do you now know what is right and wrong, but you have a burden to change. And so he leads you turning away from sin, turning towards God. And so the twofold ministry of illuminating the finished work of Christ and convicting you of, of the way, you know, sinful patterns, you could see those two together obviously will bring change about in a person's life. That work won't happen for long without it affecting some kind of change in your life as well. Now, that was a very brief description, but hopefully we've got enough already to understand this is how the Holy Spirit changes us. And one of the most powerful descriptions, and there's a lot of descriptions to you, to be used about the Holy Spirit's work. But one of the po most powerful ones and is often used in Scripture to describe what the Holy Spirit does is that He gives life. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment just to sit with for a moment, to think, okay, so if I'm changing, how, like, in what way am I changing? You're being given life. There's a newness to your life. There's an, a new reality, a new kind of order of life. Timothy Keller speaks about this. He says, when you look at the, the way that the, the kingdoms of life are ordered, you have these different orders of life, and he says each one of them is so much greater in magnitude above the other that it's, it seems like the one lower is not even life by comparison. So he says, for instance, when you look at plant life, it is a kind of a life. They are alive. But when you look at it in comparison to the next order of life up, which would be animal life, by contrast, you could say that by the way that animals live and the, the way that they exhibit life is so much grander and greater with the capacity to, to move and to feel and to, to do all kinds of things that plants can't really do as much by, by any stretch. You, see, you can see it, it almost seems like not life by comparison. And he says, then you go in order up, which is human. And human, by, you know, with our sense of self-awareness and our sense of uh, you know, just the complexity of our society and our minds, we look at animal life and we say, for sure, it's living. But compared to us, if a human was to begin to live like an animal or like a plant, we would, we would lament that and say, that is not real living. It's so much less than what living could be. 
And he goes on to describe that being spiritually alive is a level above that, where you begin to be able to live in such a way that makes the old life seem like not life at all, seem like death by comparison, seem like non-life. And so you're moved into this place where all of a sudden your life begins anew. You have this newness about life both now and forevermore. You're presently in this moment have a new life that has been begun in Christ but your future where He returns and you will have full resurrection and life with Him. It changes a person. And just like marriage, all of a sudden, from previously to currently, you have new options available to you, new considerations and thoughts that come through your mind, new depth of intimacy, new goals and and things to attain to, new responsibilities. Your daily existence changes because all of a sudden there's a new routine to life. There's a new uh, feeling to life as well. There's a new strength that you can find within you, a new foundation to define yourself by, a new identity to live out of, a new legal status that you experience freedom from judgment in Christ. I know I shot through that list really quickly and each one of them could really just be a sermon in and of itself, but it took me like a minute to write that list because it's really easy to find all the ways that Christians should be able to exhibit a change, a difference, because of what we have in salvation. It's important that you understand this. If nothing else tonight, take this away from the sermon, that you are not who you were before. You are not like those who do not have the Holy Spirit living within them. There is something fundamentally different about you. One one just huge aspect of that is knowing God, knowing Him intimately. Romans 8, 15 and 16 says this, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. By Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If that doesn't excite you, you don't understand it yet. This is a huge reality that we do not have to live in fear. That changes things. Not only that, not only are we free from fear, but we have in God a familial relationship. He is our Father. More than that, He is, you know, that, that word Abba, Father, is it's, it's a childlike word. It's this relationship of intimacy, of primal kind of Uh, The first word a child would say would be the word Abba. And unlike baby talk, which you grow out of, as a Christian, you don't grow out of the baby talk of saying Abba. You actually grow into it. You experience more and more what it means to live in this intimate relationship with God. And you move deeper into that intimacy with Him as well. And what we're talking about here isn't just a new understanding about who God is but it's a new standing under too. You like my little play on words there? Ah. Not just a new understanding, a new standing under. Ah, okay, sorry. (laughs) I felt like if I repeated it, you would understand it, but I, no, you understood it already. (laughs) Your life, because you're experiencing a new status, a new relationship, it's not just like, oh, I get it as an intellectual reality, but it's a new lived reality. 
you will have a different life as an experience, as an experience because of this. Those who are Christian, the way that God orders their steps, the way that God interacts with their life and how he is present with them throughout life changes their life. And, and I'm talking about this also from an outside perspective. I certainly don't want to take it too far to say you're going to have an easy life. Certainly not. But that now there's a guarantee that, for instance, all things work together for the good of those who love God. There's an idea that your life now, which it didn't have the, this guarantee at all beforehand, your life now is ordered in such a way that even the bad things can be used for good, bad as they are, can be used for good in your life. You have a sense in which no trial will ever be too much for you because you will have the Holy Spirit's enabling help in the midst of it all. You will never have no way out of a situation in which you're faced with the choice to sin. You will never have no way out. These are the kind of promises that come with us throughout our life now. We experience more and more of this as we say yes more often to the Holy Spirit's leading and no more often to the flesh's leading as well. So you'll begin to experience the fruit of this newness. And there's more to it than that because we're not simply called into a a one-on-one relationship with God. We're called into a communal relationship with Him as well. Gordon Fee says this, The Spirit calls forth a newly constituted people, making them a people for His name. We are not called into just a private relationship with God. We're called into a, like a, a, one, we're called into a relationship with God that must be embraced as an individual. You can't rely on your family's faith or something, but it's not certainly for you alone. You're actually supposed to experience it uh, among the community. That's God's design. There's a great story that uh, C.S. Lewis tells about when he, uh, he was best friends with two other men. And let's just call, I don't remember their names, uh, but let's just say Lewis, uh, John, and Jack. Okay? And so Jack died. Um, and they lamented the loss of their best friend, John and, and Lewis, lament the loss of their best friend, but then Lewis began to notice something within John, which was that there was a certain aspect of John's personality which only Jack could bring out. And now that Jack was gone, he realized that part of John was gone too. And so he also lamented for the loss of that side of his best friend that he would not be able to see again. And it's a touching story, and I think it there's truth in what we can experience in our lives too, that there are certain people and certain communities that bring out a side of us that isn't there otherwise. There's maybe a silly side of you or a, a courageous side of you or a you know, tender side of you that is brought out when you're around certain friends or family members, when you're placed in certain situations. And it's true, it's part of who you are and yet it only finds real good soil to move and to grow in specific situations. Well, we are set up that way as Christians too. 
the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is that when we are together, there's a certain part of our mandate, our calling, which can only be expressed there. If you try to live as a Christian outside of a Christian community, there's going to be parts of you that will never be able to be expressed, never be able to be brought to, to the front, brought out the way that God intends them to be. When we enter into salvation, the Holy Spirit doesn't draw us alone into that relationship. He draws us into becoming a people of His name, a people for the name of God. The church is not simply a club for like-minded people. It's a place where supernatural and spiritual power comes to the surface, that we have this way of expressing something. Bear in mind, the Holy Spirit created the church. You look at Pentecost, that was where the church began to exist. It didn't exist before that point. It was Old Covenant, it was Israel. Now we have something new. God is doing something new and different, and it's called the church. It, be, it was birthed through the Holy Spirit. And when we come together, we have amazing promises about that, like Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where Jesus says, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, there's a really interesting context to that verse, but it certainly means what we can plainly see there, that there's a sense in which the Spirit of Jesus is with us when we meet. And it's with us in a very special way. If we are children of God, then together we are a family of God. We are His family, and so we love each other as brothers and sisters. We have all experienced closeness and intimacy with God. We've experienced the wonder of His love and mercy. We've experienced what it's like to call God Abba, Father. We should relate to each other deeply because of this shared experience. And we should relate to each other deeply because of the power that binds us together, that despite many, many of the barriers that might separate us, like class and, and race and all kinds of different backgrounds and thinking styles and whatever else, all the hundreds of different ways we can find to split and divide up humanity, actually the church is able to overcome all of these things and settle and, and, and define itself by a deeper or higher principle. The Spirit's role is to unite us, to empower us, and to equip us to be a body, to be a family, to be a temple together. And this should affect the way that we gather. This should affect our willingness to gather as well. And on this note, we should learn something from our Pentecostal friends. Because when you look at the way that Pentecostal theologians define church, I think they're kind of bang on the money. When, uh, if you were to ask a Catholic theologian, what's the point of church? They would say, for the, the sacraments, to perform the sacraments. That's the purpose of the gathering. If you were to ask the average Protestant uh, theologian, you know, what is the point of church? They would say, for, for the preaching of the word. But if you were to ask a Pentecostal theologian, they would say, the point of church is for mutual edification. It's for fellowship. It's for coming together and me using my gifts to bless you and you using your gifts to bless me. And it's the sort of mutual edification that takes place. I like that. I think that's a beautiful reality. And try to do this. Try to look through the New Testament, just the New Testament. You could do it through the Old as well. But the New Testament and try to look at all of the times the phrase one another come up. How often we are commanded to do something towards one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Be patient with one another. 
it comes up again and again and again and again. All throughout the Bible, there's all of these one another verses. Our spiritual reality is meant to be communal. It's impossible to be living God's mandate simply by being a member of a church community without without it requiring active participation at some level, pouring yourself out towards it, or just not being in it at all. That doesn't work either. By the Holy Spirit's prompting, we are led out of individualism into love and action. John Stott also says this in the chapter, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. As John says, this love is not sentimental or even necessarily emotional. Its essence is self-sacrifice. It reveals itself in the desire to serve, help, and enrich others. It is by love that the divisive force of sin is neutralized, for love unites where sin divides and brings together where sin pulls apart. So looking at what it feels like to be a Christian, what it feels like what salvation feels like. It's a process of change. It's a process of coming together, helping each other to change and to grow as well. And there's a great song by a Christian band who have a terrible name. The name is Gungor, like G-U-N-G-O-R, Gungor. Anyway, I don't know why. But they have a good song. And one of the lines in their song is, you make beautiful things out of us. And I like that. I think that's a really good, just defining phrase we could think of when it feels like, what does sanctification, what does salvation feel like? You make beautiful things out of us. This is the difference that it makes to our life. We experience salvation. We feel it. We feel it. It bears fruit in our life. The fact that God is with you should bear fruit in your life. So make room for it. Make room for Him in your life. Do not limit the significance of what God has done in your life. Do not downplay the radical creation that you are. Have God-sized vision for what you will do and accomplish. Be bold. Be loving. Be willing to serve and to submit yourself to His leading because He desires to make beautiful things out of all of us. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Jesus, for all that you have done. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you make the work of Christ not just a fact, but a relationship. You you make it something that we can feel, that we can participate in. What a wonderful truth this is. We don't have to just wait for the day that we get to see Christ face to face. We can experience newness, new life right now. You're here in the room with us. You're here in our hearts with us. So we pray, may you do more work in us to make us like Christ, to change us, stop us being so selfish, to bring us together in unity around you and to become beautiful in the way that you're calling out of us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalogue of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.